The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au. That's www.noblebaptist.org.au. If you notice in your bulletin, there is a a sermon note sheet, and it's a lot bigger than it has been in times gone before. Uh, There is a really good reason for that, and you can thank Gina Huranius on your way out the door this morning if you want to, for this. Uh, Gina came up to me after church last Sunday and said, you go so fast. You turn to a passage, we turn, and by the time we get there, you've already finished reading it. So what I've done is I've put in here all the verses so you don't have to turn anywhere. You can read them right off the sheet. There are a couple of passages we will turn to, and I'll get you to turn to uh, as we go along. And so thank Gina for that. Actually, take your Bibles, now that you got your found in Acts chapter 1, put your finger in there and flip back over to Luke chapter 1. And we're going to read the first four verses in Luke As we said last week, Luke and Acts are two volumes of the same book, written by the same author with the same basic message, which is that God's salvation is available to all the nations through the life and death and resurrection of Christ to all who will repent of sin and believe the gospel. But Luke has a purpose in writing. He's writing to give us some reassurance and the certainty uh, of the gospel. He writes... As we can see, and we'll see in a second, to Theophilus, his first century recipient, and also to present-day disciples, and he wants to give us the certainty of the things that we have been taught. Let's see it together. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. It says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. In the NASB it says that you may know the exact truth. That purpose, of course, carries over to volume chapter 2. He has the same purpose in mind. The message is just the same. It's God's salvation to all the nations, through the life and death and resurrection of Christ, to all who will repent of sin and believe the gospel. But the purpose in writing, what he wants to get across, is to reassure us of the certainty of all the things that we have heard and told, been told about the gospel. Why would that be Luke's purpose? Why would he choose that for a purpose in writing? You've got to remember that the gospel message that the disciples and the apostles preached was met with almost immediate opposition by Jews, the priests and the Pharisees and the lawyers, etc. This was the Jews' God and the Jews' scriptures that they were using. The apostles and disciples were claiming that the Messiah is Jesus, the Jews' Messiah. And yet the Jewish religious authorities, the experts in the law, were rejecting all of it. They wouldn't have anything to do with it. In fact, as we go through the book of Acts, you're going to see how the disciples were often beaten for their faith and were opposed and eventually persecuted by the Jews and then later by the Romans for their faith in Christ. But it would be natural 
for a young disciple, someone just coming to faith in Christ, hearing all these things, it'd be natural for them to start to go, wait a minute, is this really God's salvation? Is Jesus really who he was and the apostles claim that he is? Are we really following God and what God has called us to do? I mean, surely if this was all true, the Jews would immediately have followed Jesus along with all the apostles. And you could see quite easily how doubts would begin to rise in their minds. Doubts happen. And so Dr. Luke's purpose in writing is to give us assurance and the certainty of the things that his readers have been taught so that we may not have doubts. Brothers and sisters, I know a number of us struggle with doubts, and the number is about 100%. We all struggle with doubts from time to time. And how do we deal with doubts? And the reality is we deal with doubts by presenting and declaring and supporting from Scripture the truth that we believe. And that's what Luke does. Luke gives assurance by showing a very clear connection from the Old Testament to Christ and from Christ to the apostles and disciples. This is one long, unbroken message all the way through the Bible, Old Testament to New Testament, even to us. The message of God's salvation has not changed. Luke gives assurance by showing God's hand and his sovereignty over all that's happening. He gives assurance by showing that Christ is the Son of God. He has been raised from the dead. It is not the disciples and the apostles who are going the right way and the, and sorry, it's not the disciples who are going the wrong way and the Jews going the right way. It's the complete reverse. And one of the things you're going to see as you go through the book of Acts is you see a steady parting of ways between the Jews and the high priests and so on. And not very far in the book, I think it's chapter 3 or 4, Peter says, who should we obey, you guys or God? And he makes a very clear statement to them, you're not following God, but we are, and we're going to continue despite whatever opposition we come against. Luke's gospel, like I said a minute ago, records the beginning of Jesus' ministry and the Acts of the Apostles records the continuation of Jesus' ministry through the Holy Spirit and by his apostles and disciples. Now turn back to the book of Acts and we will read Acts chapter 1, uh, verses 1 to 11. I'll give you a second to find it. This is where having an electronic Bible might be, might be cool because you can like click, swipe, move and whatever to get there faster. But if you know your Bible really well, you'll still beat it. Acts 1, verses 1 to 11, the Bible says this. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had been given commands, sorry, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. 
But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Christ is preparing his disciples for his continuing ministry. And Jesus Christ, the kind and caring and gentle teacher and master of his disciples, does not simply throw them into the lion's den of opposition without first spending some time with them to prepare them. I want you to notice the key statements about Jesus in the text. Okay, verses 1 and 2 kind of give you a summary of the whole of the passage, 1 to 11. And then in verse 3 it says, He presented himself alive to them. Verse 3, it says, he was appearing to them, proving his resurrection. In verse 3, again, it says, he was speaking to them about the kingdom of God. In verses 4 and 5, he instructs them to wait in Jerusalem for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 8, he promises them power when the Spirit has come upon them. And then in verse 10, he ascends into glory. And in verse 11, through two angels... Very interesting, the number two and two angels in the book of Luke and Acts. But two angels, he promised them his glorious bodily return in the same way they saw him go. Our Lord Jesus Christ prepared his disciples for his continuing ministry. And our Lord Jesus, our Lord and our Master, is preparing us for ministry. Remember, Luke's purpose is to reassure them, to give them the certainty of the things that we have heard and been taught. And that doesn't just apply to Theophilus in the first century, it applies to us as well today. So I want us to see four things, and you can see them on your note sheet there, that Christ suffered for his uh, disciples and witnesses. Number two, that Christ chose his disciples and witnesses. Number three, that Christ teaches them. And then fourthly, Christ reveals himself to his disciples resurrected. And really the first three are kind of subordinate to the main point, which is the last one. Christ reveals himself to his disciples as living and alive. So first of all, Christ suffered for his disciples and witnesses. If you notice, it's sitting in verse 3. It says that he appeared to them during 40 days. Sorry, the first part of the verse. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering. Now, in Bible school, they tell you don't make a subordinate clause a main point in your sermon. But when I was thinking about it and working through the text and, and preparing for the message, it kept coming back to me, you know what? The biggest preparation that Christ did for our ministry was the fact that he suffered for us. He suffered and died on a cross. He suffered and bled for us to save us from God's wrath. That's great preparation. Christ suffered and bled and died to reconcile us to God, to bring us into a relationship with the living God. It is impossible, brothers and sisters, to go out into the streets of Noble Park or around the world, wherever you go, to preach the message of the gospel if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior. And the first and most important thing he did was prepare us by suffering and dying for us. 
In Romans 5, it tells us that while we were still enemies, we're reconciled to God by the death of His Son. And then in your note sheet there, 1 Peter 3.18, it says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Christ prepared His disciples for by suffering for them. But Peter in the book of Peter, goes on to remind us that Christ's suffering is also our example for how we should endure and handle the inevitable sufferings that come against Christ's followers. Okay, so the, the, what Luke is doing here in showing Christ's suffering, he's preparing them by saying, listen, Jesus suffered and so will you. He's telling them that that's what happened to their master. Jesus said in the, in the Gospels, your disciple is not greater than his teacher. If they hated me, they'll hate you. In a sense, if I suffered, so will you. It has been given to us, the Bible says, not only to believe, but also to suffer for his sake. In Luke 9, verse 22, it says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief peace and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now, obviously, Luke's main point is Christ's atoning death and resurrection, but he also connects Christ's sufferings to being rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and then be killed and be raised. The disciples would also, in just a few pages, be rejected by the very same people. In fact, as you read the story of Acts, and you can see the Pharisees and the chief priests are all there, and the disciples are standing in front of them, and they're telling them about Jesus. And you can almost see the Pharisees going, Oh, haven't we just been here? Haven't we just dealt with all of this? They thought they got rid of Jesus, and now there's 11, 12 men standing in front of them telling everybody the same message that Jesus told them. They didn't get rid of Christ's message. Christ is carrying on. He's still preaching His message through His disciples. But the rejection that Christ in, encountered and experienced is the same rejection that we as His followers and disciples can expect. Luke is reassuring us that identification with Christ will involve suffering and rejection by our society. Listen, you don't have to be... All that bright. If I can figure it out, you can figure it out. You look in the newspapers and watch the TV. This world we live in does not like Christianity. Doesn't like it one little bit. And then we have a choice standing in front of us. We can either go along with society and try and smooth the edges and try and keep everything just kind of nice and peaceful and whatever. Or we can stand up for the truth. We can stand up for what Jesus Christ died for and stand against the errors and sins of this world. I couldn't believe it. I opened up, I get this little uh, ABC News thing on my phone, and every once in a while, bloop, blops off, and I flip it open, and I see what's happening in the world, and I see a news post. It shocked me. Faith leaders gather to bless abortion clinic in New York. I just, I actually thought I was misreading it. I went back, I thought, no, it must be that they're gathering to pray against it. No, no. All these guys there, and some of them have the, the real decorative robes and all that stuff on. And they're all gathered around with these nice smiles, and they say, well, you know, we see God's hand in this. I think some of you may have heard that uh, New York just voted for full-term uh, abortion to allow it. And these Christian church leaders 
claiming to stand for Jesus Christ are there blessing the murder of little babies. And we have the choice, brothers and sisters, we can stand against it, we can pray against it, and we can preach the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, or we can try and get along with the world. But one of the things that Jesus taught us and showed us by his life is that standing for the truth will ultimately involve rejection by the world around us. Luke is reassuring us, the readers, that suffering for our faith cannot separate us from Christ. It cannot change who we are in Christ. It's something that we must expect as followers of Jesus Christ. In Luke 24, verse 26, the Bible says this, and Jesus is speaking, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? What's Luke doing? He's connecting the suffering of Christ to the entering into glory. Meaning what? Meaning that whatever we go through in this world cannot separate us from Christ. We will be like Christ. We'll be with Christ in His glory. That path to glory may, for many of us, involve severe suffering for the faith. Christ is preparing His disciples to go out and preach the gospel and to be His witnesses all through the world. Christ's victory over sin and death exalts Him as a wonderful Savior. Christ is glorious in His suffering for His disciples and His people. Christ's suffering and death is sufficient to redeem all mankind. But Christ's death is efficient for those who will repent and believe. He's preparing His disciples by suffering for us to reconcile us. And Luke, using Jesus' words, is reassuring us that suffering for the faith is to be expected. Suffering for our faith does not mean we have mistakenly followed Christ. In fact, it means we are going in the right direction. Notice secondly, In verse 2, Christ chooses his disciples and witnesses. In Acts verse 1 and chapter 1 and verse 2, it says, uh, until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Jesus prepared his disciples by choosing them. He's showing them his authority over them. In Luke chapter 6 and verse 13, the Bible tells us, And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. In Acts 24, the Lord's gone back to glory. The church is all gathered together. The disciples are gathered together up in the upper room. And there was one missing because Judas, the one who betrayed him, had gone out and hanged himself. And now they're looking to identify one more to fill up the twelfth place. And this is what they pray. Acts one twenty four. They prayed and said, "Lord, who know you, Lord, who know the hearts of all? Show which one of these two you have chosen." And again, they put it back into Jesus' hands. Show us who it is that you have chosen to be in this ministry. In Acts chapter ten, verses forty and forty one, Peter is speaking to Cornelius. It's the first time a Gentile has had a full presentation of the gospel in the book of Acts, and he says this. He says, but God raised Jesus on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Dr. Luke, through Peter's words, connects the risen living Christ to God's choice of them to be his witnesses. He chose them. And the Bible tells us that he has chosen us also. 
Bible says in Second uh, Thessalonians 2 verse 13, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Christ sovereignly chose the twelve. In Acts 9, Christ called Paul, whom he had sovereignly chosen. Christ also chooses us to be his disciples and his witness. Now listen to what it says in 1 Corinthians 1. It's in your, in your sheet there. But God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things... Sorry, back up. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. Christ's choosing of us leaves no ground, no reason for us to boast. And we go out to somebody and say, hey, you know, Christ chose me. And the answer is, really, which one are you? Are you weak, foolish, base, or despised? Because that's what the Bible says. He chose those things to shame the things are not. So his choosing of us is absolutely no grounds for us to boast at all. But we boast in Christ, we glory in Christ because he's the one who in sovereign authority over his people chooses the ones that will follow him and walk with him. He chose us so that he will get the glory and us, not us. If we'd come to Christ entirely on our own, we would deserve some of the glory. But Christ chose us so that he alone would get the glory. Luke is subtly, gently reminding us that our following Christ is by Christ's choosing of us to be his disciples. Assuring us, he's reassuring his doubting readers that God is still, God is always sovereignly in control. God who chose Israel, the smallest, weakest slave people to be his nation in the Old Testament, has not changed. He is still sovereign. God who called Jesus Christ his chosen one in Luke 9.35. He is the same God who chose the twelve and he's chosen you and I to follow him. And of course, the question will come up in some of your minds. How do I know if God has chosen me? Well, here's the only answer I can give you. Your continual obedience to Christ's commands to always be repenting of sin, to always be following the Lord Jesus Christ faithfully, to continually believing in the gospel. The only way that you will all of your Christian life repent of sin and believe the gospel and trust in Christ is if Christ has chosen you and filled you with your spirit. It's absolutely key to understand that. It's the filling of the Holy Spirit, His choosing, and those things go together so that we know that we have been chosen by God and we follow faithfully because we carry on in faithful obedience to Christ. Without Christ's sovereign call to you and without the indwelling Holy Spirit, you will not be able to obey, repent, or believe. That's why the Bible describes some who believed but then turned away. Some who believed but then turned back from following him and walked away from Christ. It's because there was a, 
a response, a human response to what they heard. But Christ, God hasn't put a call on them. The Spirit of God was not in them, uh, regenerating them and causing them to follow and walk with Christ. Christ is glorious in his sovereign call of us to follow him. He was preparing the 11 disciples there for his continuing ministry. And Christ is still preparing us by exercising his sovereignty over us. We can rest assured that Christ is in control and we are on the right path following and obeying Christ by going out with the gospel. He suffered to purchase our salvation and reconcile us to God. He chose us to be his disciples and witnesses to his resurrection. The suffering we encounter does not undo his sovereign authority over us. The sorrows and the hardship and the disbelief of others, rejection of others against us, does not revoke or undo Christ's sovereign authority over all these things. I want you to notice thirdly that Christ prepares by teaching his disciples and witnesses. Notice first of all in verse 1 he says that Jesus, all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Notice also in verse 3, Christ spoke to the eleven. He taught them about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, in case you're wondering, is Christ's rule and reign in each believer's individual life. He is ruling over all creation. Remember Matthew 8, uh, Matthew verse 28? Try again. Matthew 28 and verses 16 and 20. What's Jesus say to them at the beginning? All authority has been given to me over all creation, over all heaven and all earth. So he has that authority. He is sitting on a throne ruling and reigning from heaven. In Luke 24, verses 25 to 27, he says to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then a couple of verses later, in verse 45, it says, He opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Sorry, I didn't put that in your note sheet. Christ is glorious in his teaching of his disciples. He revealed himself to them. He explained what the scriptures teach and promise and declare regarding himself. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the subject and the content of the entire Old Testament and the New Testament. And again, remember what Luke's purpose is. He's writing all these things to reassure his readers. And he reassures us by showing that Christ is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises and God's salvation through Christ is and always has been God's exact plan for all the nations. Christ taught them in preparation for his continuing ministry. He teaches us this day through the Holy Spirit and in the scriptures. Brothers and sisters, Always be learning at the feet of Jesus. I was meditating on this and thinking about this other day, and all I could think about was uh, Mary. Luke ten thirty nine. the Bible says that Mary had a, Martha had a sister called Mary, and she sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Her, the way that she learned, her aspect, her, her manner was to sit down at his feet. She humbled herself before him, and he was exalted in her eyes, and she listened as he spoke, and she learned of the things of God. 
Brothers and sisters in Christ, He is preparing us on an ongoing basis to go into this world and finish the task that has been left to us for Him to work through us, preaching the gospel to all nations. But He's constantly preparing us. He's constantly teaching us. Even these last moments as He gathers His disciples together, He's about to go up to glory. He's still speaking of the things that are coming. He's still speaking of His kingdom, rule and reign. He's still speaking about the Holy Spirit coming. He's giving everything again. I don't want to, I don't mean any disrespect when I say this, but it's kind of like, uh, when Heather and I go away for, uh, <clears throat> a break and we leave the boys at home. And as we're running out the door, right, we've got bags packed and we're shouting back over our shoulder, don't forget to do this and don't forget to do that and, and don't fight with each other and don't do this and, and, we're, and we're hauling all these instructions out because as we're going, we want them to know that we're all coming back too and they better do what, don't burn the house down, right? Like don't eat all the food, you know, leave the something in the fridge when we get back and don't drive the car. My kids have never done any of these things in case you're wondering. I have... No, I'm not joking. They haven't. They're, they're great kids. But you can see in Jesus, he, his desire is to let them know everything he can possibly tell them. As he goes and he, he goes back to glory and he's sending them out on the mission to go and preach the gospel to all the nations. And he wants them to know. And listen, brothers and sisters in Christ, we never will know it all. We'll never have a full, comprehensive, 100% grasp of the Scriptures. We have to always be learning. It's absolutely critical, just like an army on the front lines, right? The army goes out to the front lines, they walk through the trenches, and they're shooting at the soldiers on the far side. And as time goes by, they run out of ammunition, they run out of food, their clothing gets worn out, and they periodically come back to the back lines and they get new uniforms and new ammunition. They get new instructions from the commander-in-chief about how to conduct the battle. That's why we have church on a week-by-week basis. So the people of God can gather together to be refreshed, to be re-equipped, to be refed, to have new uniforms and new ammunition so we can go back into the battle and preach the gospel to a nation and a world that doesn't want to hear it. To preach the gospel against the enemy that is constantly attacking us to try to tear us down and wear us apart. Listen, if we think we don't need the gathering of God's people as saints, we don't need to hear the word of God preached. We don't need to hear the word of God read. We don't need to be with brothers and sisters in Christ to be built up in our faith. We're sadly deceiving ourselves or we have been deceived. He was preparing them by teaching them, by speaking to them about the things of God. Of all the places, if I go back in history where I want to be, you know those two guys that walked along the road to, to Emmaus, I think it is, and they walk along and Jesus comes on beside them. What are you talking about? And they tell them. And then the Bible says that he opened to them and explained to him to them all the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. <laughs> if I could be one place in history just for that couple hours, that's where I'd want to be. With a laptop, you know, taking notes like mad, right? <laughs> Write it all down. He wanted them to know who he was. He wanted them to know what his goal, what his plan was. He wanted them to know that he was coming back again, that this was for a short time, no matter how many years passed, that he would be back. He was preparing them by teaching them. 
Christ taught them face to face. Christ teaches us through the Holy Spirit that he's given to us. And we're going to see more about that in the weeks to come. Fourthly, last one, Christ reveals himself to his disciples as a resurrected. Notice what it says in verse 3 again. It says, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. If you read that quite literally, it would, it would be, he presented himself living. It's actually a verb. It's a participle. Living. I love it. I think it's got more punch to it than alive. I mean, alive is obviously punchy, but it's got, it tells you what he is. He's living. He came from the grave. They saw him on a cross. They saw the soldier take the spear and push it up into his side and blood and water come flooding out. They saw his body grotesquely pale and distorted as it was taken down off the cross. They saw his body wrapped up in strips of cloth and put inside a tomb. They saw the tomb shut and the groan and creak of the stone as it fell into place. And now he's there before them. He's presenting himself to them as living. Not just existing, Not just awake, but living. There's the idea of life and its essence in that statement. He prepares them by giving his disciples and us the content of our witness about Christ. And this is really a critical part of his preparation. It's the main point, as I said way back uh, early in the message. Notice the setting of that statement. It says, after his suffering, and it says, with many proofs. Now, take your Bibles and turn over to Luke 24. So go back to the end of the book of Luke, the last chapter in Luke's gospel. And we're not going to read it for the sake of time, but we are going to just scroll our way through it, if you like, and pick up all these points about Luke's proofs. He gives them, uh, Luke says in Acts, he gave them many proofs. In Luke 24, verses 4 to 6, the two angelic witnesses to Christ are being raised from the dead. Why is there two witnesses there? What the Old Testament says? In the mouth of two witnesses, let every word be established, right? There's two angels sitting where Jesus was once lying. And they say, he's not here, he's risen. In verse 12, Peter runs to the tomb. I love Peter. He's like big and bold and brash and often trips over his own tongue. It reminds me of somebody I know. And he goes running to the tomb and he leans down and he peers into the tomb and it's empty. And Peter sees that the tomb's there and the grave clothes are all there and they're all lying in a rumpled heap except the cloth that they tied around his jaw to keep the jaw from hanging open. He's taken that off and he's very gently and neatly, he's folded up and set it by itself. He saw it. There wasn't anybody there. Jesus then appeals on the, appears on the road to two people, two witnesses. Oh, surprising, eh? Why? Because when they go back to tell the disciples, they can't say, you sure you didn't have a bit too much wine on the way on the trip and you started imagining things? No, no, no. We both saw him. He was there. And two witnesses again say, we saw him, he's alive. And he was telling us all the things about himself in all the scriptures. And you know what? We were going to go on a little further. Or we're going to stop. And he was going to go further. And we we come to come and sit with us and be with us. And the Bible tells us as he broke bread. And I wonder if it wasn't just like that. You see my sleeves? As he broke bread, he pulled his hands forward and his sleeves slid backwards. And right in the base of his wrists here, there was a big, ugly, red scar. He took the bread and he broke it and he handed it across the table to them and they could see the scars in his hands. 
And I think their eyes were open in that moment. They saw it's Jesus. Before they can even say a word, the Bible says he disappeared out of their sight. And they get up that moment and they run back to Jerusalem. They're so excited. This man they have been walking with all day and listening to him speak about himself. This man who has broken bread and shown who he is. They race back to the disciples. You're not going to believe this. He's alive. What's the Bible tell us? Luke 24, verse 36. He appeared to the eleven. I don't know what it was like in the room. I'm just in my mind's eye kind of imagining. But I can see them all sitting around talking and they're, they're, you know, I have an old, dear old Jewish friend. He said, you put five Jewish men in a room and you have six opinions. And, and I could see them talking and arguing and, and the way they did in the, in the Middle East and the hands are waving and they're arguing back and forth. And all of a sudden they realize there's one more than there was a few minutes ago. And the talking all just drops off and everybody's staring at the one. And Jesus appeared to them and they saw him. Now it isn't just the two women at the tomb. Now it isn't just Peter seeing an empty tomb. Now it isn't just two on the road to Emmaus who talked. Now it's all of them together looking and there is Jesus. And he shows them. And you know what he does? He turns around and he says, give me a piece of fish. He picks up a piece of fish and he begins to eat the fish to show that he's not just an apparition. He's not just a, a collective, uh, what do they call it? A collective uh, distortion of mental something or other. Psychologists have a great name for this, that all the disciples all saw a, an imaginary thing all at the same time and said it was Jesus. Rubbish. It was Jesus in the flesh, standing with his disciples, munching on a piece of fish. And they could see it was really him. Now, why is it that Jesus, if you go back to Luke 1 again, or Acts 1 again, and he says he presented himself, he appeared to them, and he stayed with them, and he did all these things, and they're all centered around his resurrection. Why is he making such a big deal about this? Because Jesus' resurrection is absolutely critical. If Jesus is not raised, nothing else he did or said is valid and true. He is not trustworthy. Our faith is absolutely vain. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 14 to 17, it's in your notes. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Why is he making such a big deal of this? Because it's absolutely critical. Our preaching is vain. In fact, our preaching is lying about God. That is devastatingly bad. If Christ is not raised, then death could hold Christ in the grave, which means that he did not conquer sin and death, which means he is not God. It means that he is a liar, which makes him a liar on the level off the charts. Or he's an absolute lunatic that thought he was God, but he wasn't. Our faith 
is absolutely vain and futile. You may as well throw your Bible on the chair beside you, get up, walk out of this building, go down to the nearest pub and get drunk because there's nothing else to live for. It's all hopeless. If Christ is not raised, even worse, we are still in our sin. And the only thing we have to look forward to is God's just, righteous wrath poured out on all of us if Christ is not raised from the dead. Because nothing else he did or said is true. Jesus' resurrection declares his deity. The Bible says in Romans chapter 1 and verse 4, And he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus' deity declares his resurrection, and that means that the salvation he offers from God is real and valid. I'm absolutely sure that when Christ returns and I see him as he is, the Bible says in Luke or in Acts there, he will return in exactly the same way you saw him go. And when I see Christ standing on the earth, I see him as he is. I know when he gathers all the sheep and goes together and begins to go, sheep on my right, goats on my left, welcome into glory, depart into darkness and hell. I know for an absolute certainty because Christ was raised from the dead that I will stand on his right side and it will not be a terror for me to see him. It will be a joy. I can't wait for the day when faith gives way to sight and I will see Jesus. We will see Jesus. His resurrection declared and proclaimed in the greatest shout to all of humanity, He is God. We have a hope, brothers and sisters. We have a hope beyond the grave. We have a hope beyond the next paycheck. We have a hope beyond anything you can imagine because Jesus has been raised again. Jesus' resurrection is the content of their witness. If you go through the book of Acts and look at every reference to witness or witnesses, there's 20, uh, 20, no, sorry, 14 of them. Fourteen references to witness or witnesses. Six of those references specifically state and connect witnesses to his resurrection or witnesses to the fact that God raised him from the dead. We're witnesses of the fact that Jesus is alive. Over and over and over again, he connects witnesses to resurrection. That's what they're bearing witness to. Listen, thousands of men and women died by crucifixion in the first century. The Romans killed, I think it was one every so many meters for a thousand kilometers. Untold thousands died at the Romans' brutality, but only one. Only from the dead three days after crucifixion and burial. Only one, Jesus Christ our Lord, was raised and he is able and powerful to forgive sin because he is the Son of God with power. He's able to give us new life because in him is life. He presented himself living. <laughs> I love it. He wasn't just breathing. It wasn't what it meant. Okay, hang on a sec. Let's find a pulse here. So, oh, oh, look, there's a pulse. Jesus is alive. No. He was living. The essence of life was in him. He was the one who was alive and was dead and is alive forevermore. That's our Savior. That's the one we gather to worship. Brother and sister, if you're doubting, if you're struggling with the doubts that rise up, look fully upon Christ. 
See Him who suffered for you. See Him who is teaching you. See Him who chose you before the foundation of the earth and the world. Look at Him and see Him risen from the dead. Only one was raised. But if He was not raised, we are of all men most foolish. The world is right to laugh at us. The world is right to mock us if Jesus is not alive. But He is alive. He is the one who was alive and is dead and is alive forevermore. He is the one whom God promised through the prophets. He's the one through whom God is working out His salvation to all the nations. He is the one whom if we believe and repent of sin, we will know that life ourselves. And so the question I've got to ask, will you believe in Jesus Christ? Will you repent of sin and follow Him? Will you go into all the world and carry the good news of his life and death and resurrection to save the souls of men and women? Because brothers and sisters, like I said a couple of weeks ago, and we keep saying it, you cannot be a disciple of Christ if obedience is optional for you. In fact, I would say you are not a disciple of Jesus Christ if obedience is optional. The reality of who we are, the reality of our election in Christ is the fact that we choose and we continue to live in obedience to Him and repentance of sin. But we do so not as grudging, oh, I've got to do it. You know, like when mom asks, you know, someone to vacuum the floor or, or wash the bathrooms or, you know, mow the grass or something like that, you know. I used to mow in the grass with my dad because you know, he asked me to. How could I help it if stones went through the window of this Cadillac? I mean, no, I'm kidding. I never did that. But sometimes you feel grudging when your parents ask you to do something. But you know, brothers and sisters, when we're following Christ and being obedient to Him, it's not a grudging obedience. It's a joyful obedience. It's obedience because we love Him so much, we will do anything He asks us to do. It's like when you, before you're married, your parents say, please take out the trash, right? And you oh, okay, and you're going to drag the trash out, who cares? Keep the stupid thing on the way by, right? You get married. You get married, and your wife says, sweetheart, would you take out the trash? Oh, man, no problem at all, I'm out there. I'll take it out three or four times if you like, because I love you so much, I just want to do up the trash for you, right? There's a whole difference, isn't there? That's the difference between obedience not to Christ our Lord and obedience to Christ our Lord who is the lover of our souls who gave himself to the point of death who suffered and died for us who's teaching us and has given us a task to do in the context and the setting of discipleship he's commanded us to go into the world and make disciples of all nations as followers and lovers of Jesus Christ, He has commanded us to go and preach the gospel. Not because we have to, but because it is our joy to do it. Something we love doing. 